Hey, welcome to the Health Coaches Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's episode, a question. Would you like to become a wicked effective health coach to help people change their behaviors, change their habits, change their health destinies, and to be able to do it through a reliable process, one that works every time? If so, I'd invite you to check out the WellStart Health Coach Training Academy. And you can find it at wellstartcoach.com. And you can check and see when we're running our next training course. All right, let's get to today's topic. Coach Meg, Margaret Moore, welcome to the Health Coaches Podcast. Well, hello, Howard. It's really wonderful to be with you. It's an honor because probably... There would not be a health coaches podcast. There may not be a health coaches profession if it hadn't been for the work that you have been doing over the past couple of decades. Um, well, thank you for that. Yes, it's been a long journey, but I'm not alone. Nope, nope. You're, uh, but uh, you know, you're you're one of the, one of the vanguard. Um, you've written, you've published, you've you've insisted on um, on academic rigor and measurement. And, you know, I started in coaching in 1999, and the best we were doing at that point was smile sheets um, <laughs> in terms of, yes, I enjoyed the coaching session or no, I didn't. And while that's, you know, it's good to know, no one wants to be, you know, a miserable coach. You know, it's very easy to collude with clients and have a good time and accomplish very little. So I, I really want to honor the ways you have pushed the profession um, to, to the point where we are starting to know what we're doing. Well, thank you for that, Howard. That's a long yeah. story. <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's start there. I want to talk mostly with you about, you know, how, how to be a coach and what you've learned in all these years about what works and what doesn't. But I need to maybe give us a little bit, you know, the, the, um, maybe the escalator version, if not you know, a little longer than the elevator version of um, how you got into this and, and where we are now. Yes. Yeah, so. Uh, my first career was in biotechnology. So I'm a biologist with an MBA and I um, was in the roles of project management, business development, COO, CEO. So I've been a sort of leader of biotech projects and people for that first 17 years of my career. Okay, so uh, what I observed is that most of us, and now we have a lot more data, we're not taking good care of our health. Mm -hmm. We're not engaging in now what we call lifestyle medicines that have been studied and shown to both uh, prevent, uh, treat, and also potentially reverse chronic diseases. So I was coming at this from the perspective of wanting to contribute on a large scale to the betterment of human health mm -hmm. using good science. And what I observed as someone who was kind of like walking the walk since my teens was that all my smart colleagues in biotech, doctors, scientists, were not taking care of the basics, let alone the population. Mm -hmm. That would reduce your risk of chronic disease, help you live longer and avoid all kinds of bad things, you know, from heart attacks to strokes. So I was, uh, so I was thinking about like, what's the best thing I could do? 
what is the best thing if I, if I wanted to tackle that side of healthcare, not mm-hmm. more medicines. Mm-hmm. And my idea was, well, and this was not because I knew anything about coaching um, or even wellness, really. Biotech was this very little elite group that's self-contained you know it's global you know I, I almost none of my friends knew what the hell I was doing and what I was what, what the science was about so so um as I merged into this larger world I thought well if the best thing we could do on a large scale is to create a workforce of professional coaches who know how to help people change for the good for good in terms of positive change and good for sustainable change. Well, so that's where it came from. Yeah. I mean, did you start, you know, just nagging people or like, no, um, I uh, no. So what happened is, uh, I was at a pivotal moment because, um, I decided to marry my husband who was my biotechnology patent lawyer. And I lived in Vancouver in Canada and he lived in Boston, Massachusetts and for a lot of reasons, it made more sense for me to move than him. So I was at that point, I was um, get, mo- removing myself from the biotech venture I'd helped launch at a, an appropriate moment where no, nothing was um, uh, jeopardized. And I had a fresh opportunity to restart. Mm. And so I thought, well, what am I going to do with the next chapter of my career? And um, it was actually my husband's idea that we do something in coaching, but using the web, because we were thinking, wow, we've just missed the web, you know, the web boom in the late nineties. And cause biotech was not booming then. And so he said, you know, what's not obvious, which is how patent lawyers think what's not obvious <laughs> use the web for one-on-one because back then the web was, was pr- presented as a way to do one to many, one to many. So, it was his idea that we do something around coaching and, and mm. wellness and, uh, and we have it web-based for scalability. So that's how it happened. Mm. So I find it really interesting that your, your naive solution at that point, just seeing a problem and being bothered by it was individual behavior change instead of saying, you know, organizational change or like, you know, what's, what's the business cost? Like, did you notice that, was there a business cost to the fact that your colleagues were not taking care of themselves? Well, well, so um, we didn't have, I mean, that was before we had the CDC's data on diabetes prevention coaching, which showed the ROI. Um, Really, I was looking at lifestyle medicine as a, as a treatment that was inexpensive compared to medicine mm-hmm. and far less expensive. It's the, you know, it's the, um, prevention, um, is, is less expensive than the cure. And so in, inherently, I mean, back then we did not yet have the, the crisis of obesity and prediabetes diabetes that we do now. So in a way we could, I could see it coming, so um, I just felt that healthcare was missing supporting behavior change and, and, and that my experience as a leader was that when I sat with people and coached them, I could deliver, they would change. I could support change. I could see that. I saw it as project management for the individual's life. Huh. We didn't have, and I was project manager, you know, in biotechnology, you're managing you know, a, a company is a big project with lots of little projects, right? 
So I thought if people created the discipline around their health as a project, they could then focus on it with intent as opposed to starting and stopping and with the support of a coach could make sustainable change. Um, so um, that was my, that was my vision that we would have a world where there was a workforce of the size of any other profession that was focused on supporting wellness through behavior change. Uh huh. I, I love that because I see this all the time in my clients that they are, they, they feel no self-efficacy around their health behaviors and yet they're incredibly effective in their jobs. Typically the people who come to us are, you know, they're yeah. just, they're, they've been training for years. They've overcome obstacles. They get things done. They don't make excuses. They have measurements and, and, you know, objectives. And yet when it comes to their health, they're blubbering messes who just live in, in terms of, of, of guilt and, and, and shame. Yeah. Yeah. It all falls apart when it comes to focusing on self. Yeah. Yeah. So we're very good at, at getting organized and delivering results when it's on behalf of our careers or our achievements. And then we don't in fact bring that same, um, that same skill set to our personal lives. If anything, what happens is we give so much to that, that we say to heck with this, I'm just going to like eat what I want. And, and, you know, and do what I want because I have regu- I've been so regulated here that I need space in my life where I just like enjoy mm. or I just, you know, let my impulses out. So in a way, the balance to the hyper focus is to let go of the focus um, when it comes to self-care. And yeah, and so it's true. And I saw that too, you know, I saw that too with my, my really smart, scientific medical colleagues not taking care of themselves. It was so obvious to me that if you exercise, you feel better, you you sleep, you know, you sleep better, you know, you manage your stress, you uh, are more creative. Like that all that, that I knew without the data, but I saw other people didn't. Uh And, And so I thought, wow, how do I help? How do I help on a large scale? And biotech is about scale. Biotech's not, you know, it's about going after the next billion dollar drug. So I wasn't looking at this as being a coach. In fact, I didn't even realize I would be a good coach back then. I was just wanting to be the business prince organizing to principle to, to, to help build the field. Uh-huh. Well, it, it sounds like you're thinking, uh, what we need to do is train a bunch of people to be project managers for individual health. How did that work out? Because, you know, I think this was like 1999, 2000, right? Like I remember coaching in those days was very like coach you and Thomas Leonard. And it wasn't at all about project management. It was, it was very much like, you know, your, what, what are, what are your uh, intolerables and tolerables and like, how how did you approach coaching and how did it evolve? Right. So I obviously, you know, first did the reading and, and read the books and, and, and to, to appreciate. And I knew that that was not going to be the way to go in healthcare because um, evidence-based medicine is the foundation, even if there's not a lot of evidence. And of course, we've seen this in the pandemic when there's not a lot of evidence, it's pretty rough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, that, but that we needed to ground coaching in uh, science and theory. And so I set out from scratch to build a coaching protocol um, that 
drew on the main theories. So I met Jim and Janice Prochaska from with who are the you know who created well Jim created with the team created the transcritical model. Um, I learned about self determination and motivational interviewing. I brought in a, 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 an expert in counseling, um, and then eventually positive psychology. So I went. I went looking for um, the theories that, and then quickly um, I started to just do it. And um, and what happened, and the, and and building a team of people who had these other other knowledge of these other theories, and quite quickly, I mean, we wrote our first, we built a protocol in the first year and tested it in the second year um, with uh, three groups from two Blue Cross companies and a bank. So I trained a group, I, I created it, I coached, I, I looked at the theories, created a protocol, we wrote it up, then we trained, um, I think it was like six or seven coaches. Then we did these projects uh, with a bunch of clients. We tested the data before and after. Um, we had uh, outcomes measures, mainly on how well they were doing against the goals they set for themselves at three months, saw that it was working, and then built that out into a curriculum and then launched the school. So that was the work of the first two years. So, so it was a very intense phase of understanding the somewhat fluid and emergent way of, that others were coaching um, and, and understanding that's not going to play in healthcare. But still understand, you know, back then we were talking about, I think back then, the intuitive dance. We understood that there was this generative place, which we coined as the generative moment. You know, that was... We, we, um, that came out of that team that developed the relational flow theory that I led that came out of an International Coach Federation coaching research seminar. And, um, and I gathered a group, we came up with that theory, and then we began to build trainings around that, and that became the generative moment. That was about 2004, so about two years after the school launched. So we were still finding our way. I mean, the protocol really didn't settle down until you know, the first four years or so. So we were playing around a lot, which meant that we were, we were creating, you know, it was, a, it, was a, 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 it was a, not so much a checklist as an outline of like, what are the, you know, how do you, how do you um, draw out um, motivation, you know, and starts with a vision because a vision is intentional um, design of the future you want, which, which up, regulates motivation using imagination and then what are your what is your autonomous motivation what are your values and then and then then self-efficacy how do you build strength and then i'm being you know i was always one for going for the jugular which meant that if you were going to improve confidence quickly you had to go right where the big challenge was so you set a compelling vision and you understand the motivation and the way to really um release or improve confidence is to go step right up to the big challenge. And then that became the generative moment because you needed to be playful around that in order for people to um, come up quickly with new ideas, new perspectives, new ahas, new insights, which would then lead to a little bit of neuroplasticity. Oh my goodness, that's new. Mm -hmm. That's the generative piece. And then you turn that into action. And then neuroscience came along and I could start to explain it in terms of neuronal connections that happen when people have an aha moment and it's the collection of those that create the network. So then we could start to speak. And so it just sort of unfolded 
with this nice dance between the intuitive, as you know, as a coach, you find your way and you, you largely use your intuition that back then didn't, we didn't even have a neuroscience scientific understanding of the nature of nonlinear thinking. It was just woo woo. Now we do, but back then we didn't, but we knew it. There was something, you know, we knew there was something there that when we could create this zone of elevated kind of consciousness, people could, you know, oh my goodness, find things. So I, and so I really wanted to sort of um, understand the nature of that and um, make it more reliable and consistent. Mm. Uh, and so that's where I brought my scientific mind to coaching as opposed to, and I remember there was a conversation at the coaching research symposium among my peers around this, which is that if you create a theory for the intuitive dance, you'll destroy it because it's not, it's not meant, it's meant to be Mm -hmm. on a creative process. And I thought, no, 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 that doesn't, doesn't compute. Mm -hmm. If you create a theory, you can make it more consistent and reliable. So, yeah. So I was bringing, you know, my first, my husband and my current husband, my first husband, my both husbands were scientists. So I was very much schooled in the under, you know, in the understanding of how do you create a hypothesis and then how do you test it? And so I think that was always woven into the way we thought about coaching. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it, it strikes me that your background as unrelated to coaching as it was, was a huge strength uh, because it sounds like you were viewing it like drug development. Like, okay. Let's- well, that was part of it. But then what happened Howard was that, so, you know, in personality terms, you know, I was an extroverted thinker, ambitious achiever, so very strong and not, I would never have said I was intuitive or creative. What happened is when I started to coach people and usually in public, because that was how I was able to show people that it was different from their authoritative expert mode as a dietitian or trainer or even therapist. Um, I was using my intuition to to read what where the person's stuck point was. And so I quickly realized I could get people to their edge and and then past it. And I had never used that skill before, really. Right. And I didn't know I had it. I really did not know. I did not know I had the intuition of a coach. I did mm-hmm. not know. And I found it. And so it found me really the co- the ability to, the, the business part I had the design, of, but the, but the part I didn't know I had. And so this is often what happens, right? You, you in life, when you go on new adventures, you find parts of yourself that never got used before. Cause biotech's a very mm-hmm. linear field, right? It's data driven. Yeah, There's some room for creativity in the discovery process, but by the time you get into drug development, it's all process and linear and you do this study and then the next study. So I had that down. What I didn't, what I didn't know I had was the intuition. And I, and many coaches who've been through coach training say that that's the thing that got unleashed. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, you know, we're all in corporate world, pretty, linear and and then in the coaching conversation you don't have a clue you hardly know the other person you have no idea how their mind right. works right and the, no and the more yes yeah yeah and the more you know the worse the conversation is going to go the more you think you know right like think. oh yeah this person reminds me of that or i know how this plays out that just gets in the way 
Right, because then you're not reading. You're actually not in receiving mode. You're actually in sending mode and you're in decision mode and judging mode and, and guess, you know. And so, yeah, so, yeah, so that's, um, that it was really important that I discovered that I could be with people mm-hmm. and see something and then help them find it and then help them get past it. And that's, that's what is the really, for me, the center of coaching is the growth edge. Right. So let's just um, talk about the generative moment. Um, first of all, can you have an example? Like, like, like. Well, so um, in our basic vision tool at Well Coaches, um, you know, we talk, we help people generate positive resources by thinking about what's good in their lives and, what what are their moments of thriving mm-hmm. when they have real joy or flow or as if they had wings and then we help them create a vision for the future they want which probably is more about more thriving and then to really understand the heartfelt values and reasons that they want that and then we get to the challenge so the challenge is whatever is in the way. Um, so it can be, you know, anything from lack of time to I'm neglecting an area. Like I'm, I'm, um, I'm not taking care of a big part of my work life or, um, this, you know, it's really what it's any, any challenge, like, you know, New Year's resolutions, people have resolution by February, the real reason that they didn't have success before, you know, they're too busy, they're too tired, they're um, worried, um, they're, they're, there's no time, you know, just the, all the universal reasons why we don't stay on track, you know, and, and so you get to that moment and you first you have to really help clarify exactly, um, well, here's an example I can think of from a recent um, session um, where um, the client is a leader of groups and um, and in communications is very quick to go with what's wrong. Okay. I see this is wrong. And so they like zoom in and this is wrong. And, um, and before they know it, they've sliced and diced someone and they, you know, it didn't work. You know, the mm-hmm. person now feels um, uh, they've withdrawn or they've gotten angry and, you know, and, and, and they're, they, they may have called the situation correctly, but the way they implemented didn't work. And so, then, but they go, they go to that place of critiquing very quickly. So then how do you have them stem back and say, as the, as the critiquing energy emerges and you become awake to it, you know, what do you do to steer around it so that you, and what other behaviors could you do? So it's first understanding the real nature of what, what is, what, where am I stuck and where am I, where's the moment at which I move into a place which is not helpful and then, and then first understanding what that is. And that can take a few minutes to really understand like, where is the tension? <gasps> yeah. Like I can't. And, and then, and then what do I do about that? Um, and then how do you make that creative? So um, I recently did an exercise in a demo where I put up the uh, values and actions, character strengths to list of 24 character strengths. So once we had the tension, this is it. And you can tell they're in the tension. Yeah, this is it. Okay. This is uncomfortable. I don't like this here. This is like, this is, yeah, you're right. This, this is yucky. And, you know, so you have to help people get there. And then, and so, 
then um, you want to do you want to do things that get them out of the box, right? You want them to start to see things differently. So, uh, like a very quick trick is you, I put up the list of values and actions, character strengths. I said, okay, pick one of those that's relevant to you right now. And so they pick one. I said, okay, how do you connect that to your challenge? And they go, what? Mm. And their mind starts going, oh, that, oh, and that. Oh, and that, and then we're soon we're into a flow of ideas and generation. And then, then, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you feel the tension shifts to uh, relief, like a release. There's mm-hmm. a, there's a palpable change in their energy. So you're basically getting people to the tension, to the growth edge, and then you're trying to help them get past it. So they, it's like they transcend it. Uh-huh. moment and that doesn't happen all the time but that's that's what the generative moment is gotcha the the shift in perspective till you they get oh yeah mm-hmm. hey that i'm not looking at it this way mm-hmm. that's a different way to look at it now if i looked at it that way and of course we don't know which perspective is going to unlock the key right we have no idea we're just you know putting random things out just to see whether it can trigger the leap right. in so that that happens during the coaching session itself. How do you then help them transfer it to the moment when, you know, that, that feeling yeah. of tension is a feeling of stress, which shuts yeah. off the frontal cortex yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. Puts, and puts them into, you know, fight, flight, mate, or sleep. Yeah. How, how do we then re, how do we reignite yeah. their, the, the consciousness right. that they had in the coaching session? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of theories around how this happens. So subject object theory, but I'm going to use a, a mindfulness model because this, I think that um, is called SART. It's a beautiful paper by um, Phil, uh, Philbert Sveig, who used to be at Harvard is now at Vanderbilt. So the, the, so from the mindfulness tradition, there's three stages, self-awareness, self-regulation and self-transcendence. So self-awareness is the, the moment you realize that you're on automatic pilot going into, into a behavioral mode that's not working. So first you wake up to it. So the first step in that week could be just observe when that happens. That would be like a very minimal. Just notice and keep track of when you're hijacked and when you're caught. Okay, so that's the awareness. The next is the regulation, which is to catch yourself, find the pause button, hit the pause button, take a breath and make a choice to do something different. That's hard because you're like, you've, you've stopped your, you put the brakes on, you've slowed down. And that is, that is actually a normal function of an organized mind that is compromised with people with ADD. In fact, it turns out. Mm. So it's what we all have the ability to catch ourselves. It's harder now because it's harder because we've gotten into the flow of being uh, tethered to our devices and we, we've lost control of our minds. Well, but- yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, I've, I've been reading uh, Gabor Mate's book, Scattered, about attention deficit disorder, which he wrote 21 years ago. And as I'm listening to it now, it's like, it's not attention deficit disorder, it's human condition. Yeah, yeah. It's just that it's worse if you have, yeah, you, you're, you're even, because people with attention deficit disorder are more easily distracted and taken off course than other, those of us who have better self-regulatory machinery. So then you have to regulate. So then it's just practice. Um, like, okay, I'm about to criticize somebody. Huh. 
what if I just observed something they're doing well first? Hey, let mm-hmm. me just notice. I'm really grateful for like how you handled that. It takes a little creati- you know, creativity. And then, and so then you, then you, you know, you, you, you try a different behavior. So you're experimenting now. You don't really know how you're going to transcend it yet, mm-hmm. but you're experimenting. Um, and, uh, and, it's, it, it's a little bit like learning how to coach. So you remember when you were learning how to coach, you had to refrain from telling people your advice. Do you remember that moment? Yeah. I remember those years. I remember those years. Yeah. And, and as a coach trainer, I see it. Right. So that's the same thing, right? You have to, you have to actually refrain from, and then what happens? You start to see people open up when you say nothing mm-hmm. and you allow them to some space. So now your new experiment, which is not a habit yet, gets reinforced by the positive reward. And we know from Barbara Fredrickson's work that if you don't get a positive reward from the experimental behavior within the first couple of weeks, you're not likely to continue. Mm -hmm. So once you get that little reward from, um, from the new behavior, you start to anchor it because now the motivation goes up because you weren't sure, right? You weren't sure if it's going to work. You weren't sure if you're going to be able to do it. You weren't sure that you're going to get a different result. You had no evidence. So now you're the scientist and now you're gathering the evidence and then you go back and unpack that with your coach and say, well, I tried this and you really unpack it. So what exactly did you do? What was the response? How did that feel? You know, that Mm -hmm. full unpacking of experience, that full reflection, which we don't take time to do, you know, in our lives. Right. And then with that, then there's some more insights. And then over a little while, you know, people start to, ah, yeah, okay. And then, then if you know the work um, by um, um, Ann Bickert, so it's a book called Pivoting about the nature of insight. There's three, three stages in insight. Um, first is a little bit of learning. Second is you start to change your perspective and your attitude. And then third the quantum shifts are when you change your identity. Mm. So the brain can only grow one millimeter of neural network a day. So if people get an insight, they just grew, I don't know, a millimeter, right? Not a whole new network. They're not over, they're not over into the new, but over time, there's a moment when my goodness, I'm someone who can lead a meeting with, with a positive strengths-based approach mm. where people welcome, feedback because Mm -hmm. it's safe and they're curious and it works as opposed to I used to be the kind of leader that, you know, came in knowing what I needed to say and people Mm -hmm. withered on the vine. So now I'm a new kind of leader. I'm a strengths-based leader. So that's the quantum shift that happens after, you know, after lots and lots of small changes Mm -hmm. and where I become, my identity actually shifts. So that, that to me is like, the heart of coaching, you know, is that we help those shifts happen, not just during sessions, but we help them happen over time so that people really do make transformational change. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've seen people, coaches, uh, really get hung up on the insight phase where, where having insights in a coaching session becomes very self-rewarding for the coach and it's enjoyable for the client and the insights don't lead anywhere. How do you, how do you help yeah, the insights really get important? Yeah. So insight, and that's actually the nature of insight. You know, it's like the light goes on. There's a little burst of neurochemicals. Um, it's the immediate translation that into 
action experiments that are then that with accountability. So it, you, it has to be, okay, so what are you going to do next week to put this in action? When are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? How are you going to unpack it? How are you, how are you going to report on it? So it's the, it's the taking the energy of the insight and turning it right into action. So it has to go right into an action plan that then gets harvested the next time. So it has to be turned into an experiment that the client mm. can to do. Um, it's, sort of, it's sort of like a different kind of smart goal. You know, mm-hmm. I've just had an insight that if I did this, this might happen. Now I test it. So now I move into, um, it, it, this is aligned with design thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, you yeah. design something and you fail fast. So, so I think the discipline in health behavior change is that we, ha- we have goal. We have action plans that are really very specific. I'm going to do this on this day. So like three times a day when I have these meetings, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to jot down what happened, you know, so it's very, it's really turning that insight into really specific when, how, what, who, what's your backup plan. You know, the last mile of the last mile of coaching is when you turn insight into um, behavior. Mm -hmm. So I want to come back to it because you mentioned, you know, ADD and it's been on my mind. Um, And I'm, and and now that I'm sensitive to it, I'm seeing it everywhere in my clients, how do you help people who have trouble with attention, with regulation, with, you know, that, that they're essentially their nervous system has a faulty attachment connection. And so in a given situation, they're relying on very, very primitive behaviors to just feel safe. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really, uh, so, so I co-authored a Harvard health book on this called organize your mind organize your life. Um, and it was a bestseller. It's coming out again. Um, it's been delayed by the pandemic, but it's being, it's being re-released because it, it, you know, came out in 2012 and it's even more relevant now. And, um, so I worked with a psychiatrist who's an expert in ADHD. And so he brought the scientific principles of, um, ADHD. And then I, then my part was to write a a self-coaching part in each chapter so we collaborated on the you know both what is the what is, what are the the main deficits there's six of them of, of ADHD that mix and match most people don't have all of them most of us have some of them now because <laughs> because we lost um moments of mind wandering um which allowed our brains to organize themselves we used to have Sundays with nothing to do. Hmm. Now we used to stand in a line with nothing to do. Huh. Right. We used to have lots of space in our lives, you know, with nothing, you know, you came home, you didn't, nobody called you. Nobody knew your home phone number, right? Nobody, you didn't have a cell phone. You didn't have a computer. So we used to have a lot more time for our, for our race car minds to find, you know, their, their rhythm. And now we're, we've, all our attention is, is going into some kind of thing. So when we have those moments, instead of allowing the mind to just naturally find its order, we end up, you know, we end up um, pushing it like a, somebody just used the snow globe. We keep shaking the snow globe. We don't <laughs> let it settle. We don't let, we don't let the mind settle. So it's now... Um, and in fact, when we were doing the book at that point, 
I had to cure my own addiction to my iPhone. Uh-huh. That was, you know, that was one of the things that came out of it is that I learned to detach from it and to turn it off for, for like hours. You know, I, I, it is not my, it's not near me even. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so yeah, I can walk you through the principles, but, um, but we built, we built a set of principles and I have a course called organize your mind that our well coaches, coaches are required to take. Um, so yeah, so the, the, there's some very specific things that get that, that are go awry and they're very specific things we can do to um, correct those. And they're, they're behavioral experiments and processes so it's like, it's like any behavior change. Mm-hmm. You'll want to pick two or three habits that together get you to a place where your mind has at least moments of calm and, mm-hmm. gotcha. and uh, undistracted, deep focus. Gotcha. So, so given that coaching is a complex interplay and there is a lot of intuition and yet you have theoretical underpinnings and you teach coaches and you've gotten, you know, you have, uh, you sent me a link to like 12 peer reviewed studies of the yeah. efficacy of well coaches approach. How do you then continue to make it better? Oh, um, well, uh, we can't not, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how to stop. <laughs> no, but I mean, how do you, do? Yeah, so, like one of the things I wanted to say is like your, your yeah. background in drug development means that you're very, like I, when I started coaching, I fell in love with the theories that I was doing. So I was doing fine. And there was a period of about five years where I did not improve at all because there was no feedback for me upon which to improve. Either, oh, that client was recalcitrant or that one, they weren't paying for it themselves. Like I always had an excuse. Yeah. And I didn't, and I didn't have, I didn't have ways to experiment. You have a platform for experimentation. Yeah. 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 And what's the process? Yeah. Well, um, so with, with, at the school, um, the, it, it, so, so at the end of the training program and mentor coaching, there's a practical skills assessment that is, you know, that, that evaluates a set of skills that um, we believe are related to outcomes. And um, that, that part of coaching research is still to come. And when, and, and we, we have a very high pass rate now because over the years, because what we see with, 3,000 people who have completed the practical skills assessment. So we've heard everything possible that could go wrong with, uh, you know, with the, with the learning process. Mm -hmm. So whatever we learn every three, four years that gets captured. um, And, and because we have a team of 12 faculty and it gets put back in and we redo the training to take advantage of what we've learned. So it's, we've built in uh, an ongoing, um, iterative process because we're measuring the results of our training and then feeding that back in. So that's a big, a big part of it. Um, the other um, part of it is to recognize that, um, and there, that we're no coach is hundred percent effective hundred percent of the time. And so the answer to that is to just keep adding to your toolbox, which is different theories, protocols, so when we when we got to know immunity to change um, that that Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy developed at um, at Harvard, um, they taught our advanced training. They taught a module on that in our advanced training, and we be, we brought in adult development and um, Keegan's work, which is very complex. Um, it took years for that to get synthesized, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my big new area in the last, say, five, six years has been multiplicity of mind. So uh, my second book, Harvard Health book, is called Organize Your Emotions, Optimize Your Life. And um, I did deep training in internal family systems practice, um, which is a therapy model. I evolved it into a strengths-based multiplicity model. And in the last few years, I've mapped it that to the major personality models. So that's my cutting edge and uh, not the only project. And so that, that is gradually getting integrated back in. So, so I would say I'm not the only driver, but I'm, I'm the, the most, the, the fiercest driver of ongoing understanding of the human mind. And so, so, so now when I, I work in executive coaching, I'm helping people understand the, how their ego is structured around the parts of their personality that are dominant, that, that are the strong, critical, forceful parts in their inner di- a, a dialogue. Mm-hmm. And then realize that there are all kinds of parts of them that are underused and helping them find those. So that's much more complex than health behavior. That's, that's getting, it's getting gradually integrated into our basic and advanced models. So, so um, I used to ask Howard, you know, will I, will we ever stop innovating? Like, will we ever, will we ever hit a place where like we're done and it's just 20 years in and I'm still going to courses, taking, you know, I'm still pushing it. I'm pushing our faculty. Pushing might be a little too strong a word, but I'm setting an example of let's keep adding new, new understanding. So we just built a 10 part skills course for the pandemic. Uh That is a different take on a lot of same skills we've always been teaching, but it's put it into a different lens and it's added a lot of interesting new ideas so it's just this continual uh, exploring new areas of mostly psychology and neuroscience, thinking about where they, so it's this dance between new science and new practice that never really, maybe never stops. Right. I keep finding that I'm, you know, the course I teach is 12 recorded modules and it's now three years in. And every time I then engage with students about it, I am criticizing more and more of what I thought and believed and, and yeah. emphasized. Yeah. Well, like, okay, I got it. I just have to redo this. Yeah. And um, that, that's a good thing because it means that we're, um, I mean, coaching still, coaching's really new. I mean, what, what I love about coaching is that it really is just the term we use for leveraging all we know about the nature of humans and our need for um, thriving and competence, which means we need to grow. Growing is uncomfortable. You know, we talk about growing pains, right? And um, the world is now changing so quickly that we've got to learn how to change ourselves more quickly, right? Because we're not keeping up. Mm-hmm. And that causes burnout and depression and, you know, mild or major. And, and so I think our call as coaches is to find new ways to change even faster mm. you know like yeah. make it and make it make it easier and faster because what's happening with the pandemic people are resisting change like that's what makes make suffering up i'm not talking about the loss of life and livelihoods because that's huge and so there's an enormous amount of loss and grief but if you if you separate that out and you look at the de- the disruption to our daily lives that's a lot of change right yeah 
we had it in yeah. Fort. And, and so those folks who are doing well are the ones who know how to change themselves fast enough mm-hmm. so they can, they can yeah. be with it. And, and, and so I think that's our, so I think it's much broader than the term coaching. It's yeah. really about how do we so, stay agile and keep evolving fast. Yeah. So regarding that, like before we started recording, we talked about a project you're working on that's sort of a social justice project, like, you know, global, societal. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a form, there's a group of like therapy in this, in the Western world that's about helping people fit into society and be productive. And there's, there's certainly an, uh, an aspect of coaching that's that as well. But you're also saying like, we live in a society in which we are being ADHDized. Um, we live in a society in which there's racial inequity, in which there's economic inequity. Do you see a place for coaching for social change as well as just helping individuals adapt to a really dysfunctional yeah. social situation? Well, I would say I would say that I'm stepping into the space. I don't know where it will go. Like I, I really don't. My my intuition is leading me in this direction to really dive in to the, you know, to all of the amazing work that I haven't been reading, you know, about racial inequity. I mean, as most of us who are white haven't been really diving in, we've, it's been in our peripheral vision, not in our central vision. And um, I, I suspect that the society that emerges from this will be more humane. There will be more, more dignity for people will be more focused on everyone's well-being, um, that um, we will help everyone reach their full potential more than we are now, because that's the, the, the inequity comes ultimately is when people don't get the same opportunities that white people have as the majority. And um, I don't know whether my view of coaching will change or whether whether that just entering into that space, because everybody is right. We've never, the white majority has never really been asked to um, consider a world where, where our culture is not majority, that there's a synthesis and integration, right? That's well, it's, 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 it's our, it's our generative moment, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I, so in that sense, I feel as though I'm, I'm, you know, with everyone else really, exploring this deeply caring caring about the um the terrible consequences of this and um just you know feeling like i should be in the space and i don't know where it will go and i know um um but i think i think the principles of coaching which is to help people realize their best potential is are at least relevant and and um and i don't know if they need to change i don't know you know in reading about white fragility um uh, and how you know whites don't want to have their their um, beliefs around their their implicit biases even questioned. You know, we we go into def- I'm not a racist. What are you talking about? Those are bad people. I'm not one of those people. Like just completely shutting down conversation, and which is an ego an ego protective response, right? It's an, it's it's not just in this case. You know, we do a lot of it. And what does this mean as a growth edge? Yeah, for all of us. And so, so I think I, I so I'm and I'm mostly in a place of feeling compassion, wanting to help, and also being really curious, mm-hmm. really curious about yeah. what this means for the human mind and the and the world. 
-hmm. if we really, really take it in, we really let it sink in. Right. Well, it's almost, it's almost like we need to, you know, we're in a position to sort of coach white society, white privileged society to the same way the person, the, the imaginary person you're talking about who can't, you know, perform well in meetings because they have a knee-jerk reaction, which is an ego defense, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. But, but I think the thing is, coaches are not, we're a white majority too, a lot of us. Like, we don't have a lot of black, we, we need a lot more black coaches. Mm -hmm. And so we're not even in, we're not even really, uh, we're part of the problem, actually. You yeah, know? I, and, I just, and, and also we're, and, you know, and it does beg the question, I was thinking recently about the idea about readiness to change. So there, there are in any era, domain of life, there's roughly 40% of people in pre-contemplation, which is no way defensive or hopeless. And another 40% in contemplation, which is, you know, on the fence, like maybe, maybe not, maybe, maybe not. So when it comes to outgrowing racism, we probably have 80% of us not ready to do anything. And so there's only 20% of And so all we can say as white coaches is we, maybe we're readier to change, but we haven't changed. So how do we, we, we're not even changed. And then we're helping clients who may be not ready, which means we're pushing them to do something that they don't want to do, which is not coaching. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to talk about here. Right. Like it's, well, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a whole new, you know, we'll, we'll, have, we'll be a lot further along in a year from now because we've, we've leaned in to understand it. But, but as coaches, we have to go first. We have to actually work on ourselves first. Right. Oh, we're not, oh, we're not, and we're not better than anybody else. Right. Right. Always. Always. That's, that's yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I know it's almost the top of the hour, so I'm going to let you go, but before we do, how do can folks find out about you, about becoming a well coaches coach? Um, well, thank you. Howard. So, um, well coaches is wellcoaches.com. And uh, my website is coachmeg.com. Awesome. So I'll, I'll include links to everything that I managed to write down that you mentioned in the, show, in the show notes for today's episode. And again, thank you so much for, for, the, for all the work you've done to, uh, to raise up this profession. You know, you're one of the giants upon whose shoulders um, I like to think I, my work stands. And uh, it was just a real pleasure getting to talk to you. Thank you, Howard. Lovely. Good luck. Lovely right, conversation. Thanks. Okay. Take care. Okay. I hope you found that helpful. So if you'd like to become a health coach, or maybe you already are a health coach and you'd like some additional training and more skills, or perhaps you're a health professional, a doctor, nurse, dietitian, etc., who would like to be able to influence your patients more effectively, again, check it out, wellstartcoach.com. All right, have a great day.